Our scripture this morning is from Luke 6, verses 27 through 38, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Love your enemies, but I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes away what is yours, do not ask for it back again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And in judging others, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure that you get back. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this fall, we have sort of been in a couple of different places. We started the fall in a series called Earn, Save, Give, All You Can, where we talked about um, the ways that we can better relate to the blessings that God has given us, the financial blessings that God has poured out on our lives, how we can be responsible with our money, earning all we can, saving all we can, and giving all that we can. And for the past couple weeks, we've been in a series called Gotta Have Faith where we're looking at what it means to have true faith, faith in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Now, for most of us, we operate with our finances on one side of our life and our faith on the other side of our life. Like we have a, a, a pocket or a drawer inside of ourselves where our finances live, and we have a pocket and a drawer over on this side where our faith sort of lives. I want to tell you, friends, that that's not God's best for us. God envisions us to have a life that is integrated, 
not compartmentalized, a life that is integrated so that every part of who we are touches our faith, so that every part of who we are is influenced by Christ, so that every part of who we are is lived in response to God's gracious offering of Himself to us, every part of who we are. And so this morning, as we sort of jump back to the All You Can series and still lean into our Gotta Have Faith series, these two worlds are colliding. This fall at Pittman Park, we did something new, at least something that we hadn't done for some time here. We started a Wednesday night Bible study. It's been a long time since we've done a Wednesday night Bible study, and we decided to start um, in, in a classic place for Methodists, and that is with a disciple Bible study, and now we offer the class on Wednesdays and Sundays, and uh, both uh, are going incredibly well, but disciple Bible study is a commitment. Uh, how many of you have taken disciple Bible study in here before? Any, any of the, yeah, hands kind of all over the place, yeah. It's a commitment, right? Because it's not a uh, three or four week Bible study, it's a 34 week Bible study. People came to me when I first posted that it's a 34 week Bible study, they said, is this a, is this a typo? Three or four, not 34, no, it's it's 34 weeks, 17 weeks in the Old Testament, 17 weeks in the New Testament, examining God's Word. Not only are you committed to two hours a week um, of study and of class meeting time, you also have big chunks of Scripture that you're assigned to read. Every day there's a reading. Every day there's an opportunity to dive into God's Word. And it's been a blessing to see you know, some 40 people gathering together to read God's Word and to study and to talk about what the Scriptures mean and what it means to them. But it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. One of the threads that stood out to me this time through the Old Testament, we're in week 10, so we're, we're just getting to the uh, divided kingdoms and the words of the prophets, but one of the threads that has sort of weaved its way throughout our discussion uh, this time through the Old Testament is, is how God works to set the children of Israel apart from the rest of the world. How from the very beginning with Abraham, God desires to set a people apart for his will and his purpose in the world. So God makes covenant with Abram who becomes Abraham and God promises that he'll bless him and he'll be a blessing and that his children will outnumber the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the beach. So God begins to set people apart beginning with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then there's a nation of people who end up in Egypt, and after some 40, 400 years, find themselves enslaved. Not only are they enslaved, but they're forced to give up the defining mark of them as a nation. Do you remember what that is? It's the Sabbath. Slaves don't get a Sabbath. And so God intervenes into the story of the children of Israel. And he begins to liberate them from their oppressors, from their bondage, from their captivity. You know the story from Charlton Heston, right? Or Exodus. I mean, you could read Exodus instead of watching the movie. The children of Israel are, are liberated, and as soon as um, God begins to intervene in their story, what you see is that God sets them apart. Some of the plagues don't happen in the land of Goshen. They happen in Egypt, but not in Goshen where the children of Israel live. When the Passover, the night of the Passover happens, 
God tells Moses to tell the people to set themselves apart by sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the destroyer will know which houses are set apart for God. Then God delivers these people through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And you would think the wilderness would be enough definition for people, but God goes further. God just doesn't define his people based on their geography, the place that they happen to live. God gives them a new rhythm for life. He reestablishes the Sabbath. He says, this is how you will live, distinct from the rest of the world. On six days shall you labor, and on the seventh you will rest. God redefines their rhythms and habits and patterns of being. Then he redefines the way that they eat and drink by giving them manna and quail. So they don't have to toil like everyone else. Instead, day after day, God provides and the people gather in the blessings of God, manna from the ground and quail for them to eat and feast on. Then God shows up in another powerful way, the top of Mount Sinai. God delivers the Ten ten Commandments to the people. These rules for how they were to define themselves and stand apart from the rest of their culture. These precepts for living. And God goes even further by giving them the rest of the covenant. The the kosher law that defines literally how they eat and how they drink and what they wear. Where they go. What they're allowed to touch and not to touch. See, the children of Israel, the Hebrews... The people of God were called to be a people who were set apart, who were committed to God, not only by what they believed, but also by the way that they lived. Don't miss this. That it's not just about what the people believed about God, but how they lived their lives that set them apart for God. And friends, I believe that God is still calling his people to be a people who are set apart to stand out and to look different than the rest of our culture, to look different than the rest of the world, not by what we believe to be true about God, but how we live our lives, how we interact with our community, how we love our neighbors, how we do business, how we care for the lost and the broken and the oppressed among us. You'll remember Jesus saying that we are called to be salt for the earth and light for the world. We are called to be a people who make a difference, who are set apart for God's will and for God's purpose in the world. We are set apart, which brings us to our text from Luke 6 today. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus delivers his sermon on the plain. He's he's just called his 12 disciples. He comes down from the mountain and finds a level spot where he begins to preach and teach to the people who are gathered there. It's the disciples and then a crowd begins to gather around. And in verses 17 to 26, Jesus gives the Beatitudes and he he pronounces woes. He first gives these these, um, ways that God views those who are oppressed and broken and then woes for those um, who have no care or concern for the broken. And then, in verses 27 to 38, Jesus defines what a disciple's life looks like. Jesus defines for us what it looks like to be set apart as one of his followers, how we are to stand out in the world. I call this Jesus' ethic for discipleship. This is how disciples are supposed to pattern their lives. Take a look at Luke 6, 27 to 38 with me. 
Verse 27 begins this way. But you who, but excuse me, to you who are listening, I say. Now remember, Jesus is preaching to his disciples and a crowd that's gathered, but Jesus is also preaching to you and to me. These words weren't given for some people who lived in Galilee 2,000 years ago. These are words of life that are given for us today. So you who are listening, listen up. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, Jesus says. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In these verses from Luke 6, Jesus sets his followers apart from the rest of the world. He gives his disciples a new and different way to live. He gives us a new and different way to live, a new ethic. So what I want to do is just break down this new ethic that Jesus gives for us this morning. And it begins this way. Love your enemies and do not judge. Y'all, Jesus didn't have to say much more, did he, to set us apart? If you want to be set apart in this culture, if you want to be set apart in this age, in this country, all you have to do is love your enemies and refrain from casting judgment. I don't know if you know it, but midterm elections are almost here. Right? You can actually vote tomorrow. You can do early voting at the courthouse tomorrow. Midterm elections are upon us, and every time I turn on the news, there's another commercial about how awful Herschel Walker is. And how evil Raphael Warnock is. And how terrible the Republicans in Congress are. And how rotten the Democrats are. Every commercial break is filled with nothing but political attack ads. Y'all, it's no wonder our politicians can't get anything done. They spend all of their time pouring out hate for one another. They're too busy slinging mud to do the work that they were voted into office to do. Y'all, that's what the world does. It attacks people. It hates people. That's not what followers of Jesus do. We don't destroy our enemies and pour out hate for those who think or act differently than us. 
Friends, disciples of Jesus, we love our enemies and refrain from making judgments on others because we know that only God can judge and we know that we are sinners. We know that we are broken. We know that we have great faults. And so instead of judging, we refrain from judging. Instead of hating, we choose to love and to extend grace to others. A defining mark of a disciple of Jesus is that they love their enemies and they refrain from judging. The next defining mark of a follower of Jesus is that we bless and give even to those who curse and who take from us. Let me tell you, if you thought that loving your enemies and refraining from judgment is hard, this next part is going to seem impossible. I mean, let's be honest. Who wants to give to a thief? Who wants to give to someone who takes? Who wants to give to an enemy when they're in need? They're your enemy. That's not a normal posture towards the world, at least according to our culture. But Jesus challenges us that when we're struck to turn the other cheek, to give more than was asked for, to go the extra mile by treating people the way that we wanted to be treated, excuse me, excuse me the way that we want to be treated, not according to the way we think they deserve to be treated. That, friends, is distinctive. That posture will set you apart from the rest of our culture and from the rest of the world. I think about these verses when I hear God whispering to me to help the people that fall across my path during the week. I know you bump into people all the time who need a little help. And maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not hygiene products or something that you buy from a store. Maybe it's just a hug or a handshake or a conversation. God whispers to us, telling us to bless and to give even to those who might misuse the gift, even to those who might take advantage of us. Bless and give even to those who curse and take from you. Bless and give to those people you think aren't going to appreciate or understand the gift. Bless and give because God has done the same thing for you. God blesses us and gives himself to us in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of the fact that we are sinners and broken, in spite of the fact that we don't get it right. So we bless and give because that's what God has done for us. Here's the next part of Jesus' ethic. Be merciful and forgiving. Merciful and forgiving. Why be merciful? Because you've received Mercy. We who are followers of Jesus, who are still listening, we've all received mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. We've received pardon for our sins. We've received forgiveness for our sinfulness and brokenness that we didn't deserve. By accepting Jesus into our life, God no longer holds our sins against us, but instead pours out mercy and grace upon our lives. And Jesus calls us to imitate God by being merciful and grace-filled in the very same ways. Jesus calls us to be grace-filled and grace-giving in the same way that He has been for us. What we deserve from God is death for our sinfulness. 
But God has poured out His mercy through Jesus' death and resurrection, so disciples of Jesus are set apart by their willingness to give mercy instead of doling out judgment and punishment. And the last part of Jesus' ethic is this. Give freely and without expectation. Disciples of Jesus Christ give freely and without expectation of any sort of return. We are set apart by the way we use the resources and the gifts that God has given us. Our money, our time, our giftedness, our calling. We give these away for free. Jesus calls us to live differently by giving differently than the world gives. Man, I don't know if you've ever taken out a loan at the bank, but I have. Right? And they say, all right, we're going to loan you $20,000. And you say, great. And they say, and 5% interest. And you go, hang on just a second. When the bank lends money, they lend money plus interest, right? Like you have to pay back more than what you gave. Why? Because they expect a return for what they have given you. They want back not only what was given, but more. Disciples of Jesus, on the other hand, give freely and without expectation of return. Disciples of Jesus invest to see things outside of themselves grow. We invest our money in the church so the kingdom of God can grow here in ways that we see in ways that we don't even see. We don't expect our money back or expect to get our way because of what we give. We give as a reflection of the generosity of God. We give because God has given us so much. So we are those who give differently than the world gives because we give freely and without expectation. Jesus' ethic, this way of living, is powerful because it breaks our culture's cycles of violence and retribution. It frees us from bondage to anger and hate and greed and violence and it allows us to imitate God. But this sort of life isn't easy. That's why some of you are bristling this morning. That's why we sort of stare with our heads turned a little bit when we read this passage of Scripture. Because Jesus is calling us to live differently than we ever have before. And living that sort of a life, it requires commitment. As followers of Jesus, we don't sort of trip and stumble into a life like Jesus describes in Luke chapter 6. It takes commitment. It takes work. But our world doesn't like that word commitment. To be committed to something means that you're dedicated to that cause or to that activity. It means that you're giving up some part of your freedom to be set apart. But Jesus calls us to commit ourselves, our whole selves, to Him. And when we do, what we find is not restriction. But what we find is true freedom, true salvation, and everlasting life. But it all begins with commitment. Y'all, I'm a committed Georgia Southern fan. You may not know about me. If you're my Facebook friend, you're already aware of this. I love the Eagles. I love Georgia Southern. I love when they win. I hate when they lose. I show up for football games and volleyball games and baseball games and basketball games. If we had badminton games, I'd show up for them too. I show up whenever there's a cause. I walked in heels around the campus one time because Georgia Southern was doing a thing, so I was all in on it. 
I'm committed to the, the team. I'm dedicated to the university. I give to the Irk Russell Fund. I'm, I'm committed to Georgia Southern, which means I, I don't root for App State. Because <laughs> I'm committed here, not there. I'm committed here. It means I wear blue and white and not orange and blue or even red and black, friends. I'm committed. I wonder, though, if I have the same commitment to Jesus that I do to my university, to my team. I wonder if I, if we love Jesus and the church enough to live our lives in a way that they're set apart and different. I wonder if we show up for Jesus the way that we show up for our favorite team. I wonder if we talk about Jesus with our friends as much as we talk about Georgia Southern or the Atlanta Braves. I wonder if we give to the church and to God's purposes as much as we give to our alma mater or our favorite club. And I could go on and on about this. But the bottom line is this, friends. The life that Jesus is calling us to a life filled with love, blessing, mercy, and generosity, it requires a commitment. It requires a commitment. And not just a commitment that you write down on a card and pass up in an envelope or leave here at the altar in an envelope. But a commitment of your whole self, your whole life to Jesus' plan and purpose to God's will for you and for our world. It requires a commitment of every single part of who we are, not just some drawer over here or some little part over there, but the fullness of ourselves. Paul tells us that we're to be living sacrifices, that this is our true and spiritual act of worship when we lay our full selves down at the feet of Jesus. So this morning, you're invited to make a commitment. And if you leave a card and an envelope up here at the altar, that's great. But if you make a commitment in your heart to Jesus Christ, we want to celebrate that with you. Because that commitment will transform your life and that commitment will transform this world. That commitment will transform this church. will transform your family, your marriage, the way that you parent. And so this morning, we're going to pray, but I want you to know that today, you're invited to come forward to this altar rail, not only to offer your commitment cards and your pledge for the upcoming year, but to offer your whole lives to Jesus. Today's a day where you can choose, you can commit to being different, you can commit to being set apart, you can commit to give your whole self the fullness of who you are, to being one who lives according to Jesus' way of life. A way of life that brings glory and honor not to ourselves, but to our Heavenly Father who loves us. We'll pray and then Catherine's going to play and the altar will be open for you to come forward and to make your commitment. Let us pray. Lord, we are committed to so many things. We've committed our time to our calendars and our work. We've committed our 
our money to a thousand different things. We've committed our hearts. But here and now, Lord, we pray for the courage and the confidence to commit ourselves the fullness of who we are to you so that we can live lives that are distinctive, lives that are set apart, lives that imitate your life, lives that imitate and share your grace, lives that demonstrate your power and your presence in this world. So Lord, as we come forward this morning, would you just meet us here in this place? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we commit to you that we might live more fully as disciples of you? That we might receive for the first time or for the 500th time your grace through salvation? That we might receive a new life that the old ways might pass away and that the new might come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This time you're invited to come forward, spend time at the altar, and make your commitments to God.